Hey, everybody. Happy holidays. I hope you had a great Christmas. I did. Have a, had an interesting Christmas, to say the least, a Christmas dinner. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also going to be, I'm going to be, I am the owner. I'm going to be, ha, I am the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Based out of Sacramento, California, we're 45 strong up and down the state. That means if you think you have a paranormal problem, we can definitely get to you. But it might take us a couple of days because California is this huge state. In the case, it does take us time to get to you. We can uh, have one of our team psychics give you a call, and uh, if it is a paranormal, if it is paranormal in nature, they can calm the energy down until we get out there to help you. You can find us on Facebook under California Haunts, California Haunts Ghost Events, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. You can find us on California, another California Haunts Paranormal Investigation. There's two pages. You can find us under Sacramento Sears, S-E-E-R-S. You can also find us on Instagram at GhostyGal. That's all lowercase. You can find us over on TikTok under California Haunts. You can find us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That really bugs me. X, formerly known as Twitter, under California Haunts. You can find us on Twitch as Cal Haunts. So there's no reason why you can't find us. So just email us there, and we will definitely get back to you or... Give me a call. You guys, my, my number is listed. All right. Well, welcome tonight. Again, my name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. We're going to, this, this Christmas Day, usually I do a show on Christmas Eve. And last month, or last night, uh, we, I went ahead and released the uh, spooky stories on, on Christmas Eve. And uh, wow, you know, when I got done reading those, because I did a pre-recording on those, those were really cr some, some, some depressing stories that came out. Wow. I mean, that, I know there's one section of that book that gets really, really depressing, and that that was it. But we nailed it last night on Christmas Eve. So uh, tonight, I'm going to do what I usually do on Christmas Eve. I've got three Christmas poems for you, and uh, two you're going to know. The other one you might not know. Of course, we've got the uh, Visit from St. Nicholas, and we've got the Yes, Virginia editorial. I've also got a poem about the Christmas cat, but it's not what you would think it is. You know, it's not about the old cat or anything like that. This is about just a, just your regular domestic cat. So we're going to read those off tonight. And if we have time after that, we're going to get back into the scary winter story book. And that way uh, you guys can get some, some holiday creepy stories into your system to get through and end the holidays with. In the meantime, I've got my own kind of funny story. Uh, we were all gathered at my niece's for dinner tonight, and uh, we had our Christmas vacation moment tonight. And anybody that's seen Christmas Vacation uh, knows the scene where uh, the squirrel is in the Christmas tree, right? And it ends up getting loose in the house, and there's a big mass. Everybody's chasing around it. Well, some something similar kind of happened with uh, with all of us. We were gathered at my niece's house, just kind of hanging out, sitting at the table, watching TV, and not and and pretty much. And my niece, uh, my, my friend decided to go to the restroom, and then my niece decides to go down her hallway, and all of a sudden she screams and, and starts running back out, and we're, you know, everybody's wondering what's going on, and apparently we had an extra Christmas video, uh, visitor. I want to call it a dormouse, because the dorm, you know, because like if Cinderella, the, the, the dormouse used to come out and help Cinderella dress, and because it's the holidays, why not call it a dormouse? Anyway, it turns out it was a live mouse in the hallway, and she saw it of course nobody believed her at first you know that that it came running down the hallway at her and from what she said it she scared it so it squealed and she squealed and it was crazy so then of course uh, all the girls were were doing their mouth thing you know, some were scared some weren't and then my nephew uh greg and his son connor he uh got that thing out of there 
they traced it down and were able to get it out safely in a you know, covered it in a trash can upside down, took it out front and let it loose. But this little mouse, and it wasn't a very big one, it was just a little tiny guy, uh, joined the party tonight. And it made, made, it made things interesting, really interesting. So that was my Christmas vacation, my, my Christmas, you know, uh, my Christmas vacation, yeah, my, my, my Christmas vacation story for the night. Okay, getting to it. You know, there's a lot of legends for Christmas. We are reading, you know, in the, I am in the process of reading that uh, Christmas Legends book, which is an excellent book. I thought about it tonight, but as you can see, I've got my glasses on, and uh, I was talking Friday about the mishap of, of stuff that was had gone wrong Friday before the show. And one of the things that had gone wrong Friday before the show was I, I usually wear contact lenses. And so I had some issues with my contact lenses, and uh, this is why I'm wearing glasses today because it's probably, once I go see the doctor on this, it's probably going to be uh, five to seven days before I can wear my contacts again. So wearing glasses today. So I decided not to read that Christmas book because I cannot enlarge it very, very large. And I'm going to work on that tomorrow. So I had to pick stuff that I could enlarge and actually read because my I don't see very well to do the show with my glasses on. So <laughs> here we go tonight. So the first thing I'm going to read is the poem about the, the Christmas cat. And it's not quite what you'd expect. When I, when I was a kid, my father used to listen to all these uh, big band programs because that, that was his era. And during this time, you know, this, this particular time of year, they would always have, have real, some really cool poems that, that came on. And one of the poems that really stuck with me as a kid was this Legend of the Christmas Cat poem. And it is an anonymous poem. There, there's no author to this. And I forgot about it. And years later, when I, you know, when I started listening, growing up and reading this stuff, I was able to, to find it, and then it disappeared again. So it, it's hard even to find on the Internet. In fact, I could not find this on the Internet this year. I had to go back to, through some old emails that went back like 11 years that I had sent to one of my team members that's a cat lover to, to even find this thing. So I've, uh, so I've got it, and I want to read it to you guys. And it's all about your cat that you have in your house. And you'll probably hear some familiar things, okay, because it does talk about familiar things that happened while the cat was visiting the manger. So let me bring that up. Okay, so here we go. It's called The Legend of the Cat. At midnight stroke, on the first Christmas, half the world awoke. Then out of the nest and lair came thronging to Bethlehem the wordless folk, hurried the beasts of the forest, the birds of the air, to pay the Lord their homage and his due. And cat came too. But being shy and wild, approached no nearer than the hearth, lay dumb and distant there, while the rest knelt in praise. The cat, by too much glory overcome, could not withdraw her gaze. From the nativity, could only stare through slitted eyes as things of fur and feather. The deer beside the lion, the pheasant, the hare, safe in the fox's paws, bent down together. Although their anthems lifted all around, she, in her throat, made only a trembling sound and could not bow her head. Yet, as the morning dawned, and one by one the other creatures fled, each to its habitat, the eagle to its crag and to its pond, the otter. Only cat remained beside the dying fire, unable to quit the place that was both crib and stable. Then Mary spoke aloud. Dear cat, she said, dear stiff-necked, proud and obstinate beast, I bless you. From this hour, leave wilderness behind you. Because you stayed, thou none shall have the power to call you okay i'm sorry because you stayed though none shall have the power to call you servant yet the heart shall bind you forever to itself both fond and free 
Wherever man is, you shall also be. And many a family will smile to hear you singing. Where you settle. Household hosannas like a pulsing kettle. Some winter night. Observe Cat now. Her eyes will suddenly glow with a great yellow against the light. Her body shudder in a jungle dream. Her claws unsheath their sharpness. She remembers old times. Old barbarous customs. Old Decembers. Before she called the tribes of man her friends. But the dream ends. Then, reassured, she curls herself along the floor and hums her cool domestic song. So that is the legend of the cat. And that is the poem that I fell in love with all those years ago. And I still listen to it today. And I have cats. And every time I hear my, my especially, especially my, my big tomcat purring away, I think of that poem. This thing you hear in the background, I have an 18-year-old rat terrier who is senile. So he goes through bouts of moments where he doesn't know where he's at. And that's what's going on right now. So he will fall asleep. He's, you know, he's not hurting or anything. He's just having one of his senior moments. So that was The Legend of the Cat. I love that story. There's all kinds of legends out there. You know, there, there's also the Christmas cat, the Yule cat. You can go into, like, detail. We did talk about the Yule cat in, in uh, Sylvia Schultz's book earlier this month. So we, we did cover the Yule cat. Okay, up next. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the house. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care and hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled, all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. And Mama and her kerchief, and I and my cat, had just settled down for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below. When what do my wondering eyes did appear? But a miniature sleigh and eight tiny reindeer. With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer and Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donder and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, set up to the house step, housetop the courses they flew, with a sleigh full of toys and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry, his cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight his teeth, and the smoke had encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work and filled all the stockings and turned with a jerk. And laying his finger aside of his nose, 
and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the dawn of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. At least I found one, right? Okay. The next one we're going to do is the Dear Virginia Letter. Let me enlarge this so even I can read it. There we go. And uh, eight-year-old Virginia wrote editor of a newspaper asking if there was really a Santa Claus because some of her friends told her there wasn't. And it goes like this. Dear editor, I'm eight years old. Some of my little friends say there's no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? Virginia O'Hanlon. 115 West 95th Street. Dear Virginia. I'm going to take this down just a little bit. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. You just have to bear with me. I'm going to have to read this through. You just got to bear with me. A little bit here. I'm trying to make it smaller to read. The smaller it gets, the worse it is. <laughs> okay. Let me go with this. Okay. Give me a second. Virginia, your little friends are wrong. They've been affected by the by the skepticism of skeptical age, of a skeptical age. They do not believe except they see. They think that nothing can be nothing can be which is not comprehensible by their little minds. All minds, Virginia, whether they be men's or children's, are little. In this great universe of ours, man, and it just jumped on me. I hate when these ads do that. So okay, here we go. In this great universe of ours, man is a mere insect, an ant. His intellect is compared with the boundless world around him, as measured by the intelligence capable of grasping the whole truth and knowledge. Yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He exists as certainly as love and, and generosity and devotion exist. And you know that they abound and give to your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas! How dreary would be the world if there were no Santa Claus. It would be as dreary as if there were no Virginias. There would be no childlike faith then, no poetry, no romance to make tolerable this existence. We should have no enjoyment except a sense in sight. The eternal light which childhood fills the world would be extinguished. Not believe in Santa Claus? You might as well not believe in fairies. You... You, you might get your papa to hire men to watch all the chimneys on Christmas Eve to catch Santa Claus. But even if you did, and even if you did not see Santa Claus coming down, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign that there is no Santa Claus. The most real things in the world are those... And they jumped on me again. I... The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor, nor men can see. Did you ever see fairies dancing on the lawn? Of course not. But then there's no proof that they're not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil covering the unseen world, which not the, not the strongest men, nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived, could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance, 
can push aside that curtain and view and picture the, the, the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it real? Ah, Virginia. In all this world, there is nothing else real and abiding. No Santa Claus. Thank God he lives, and he lives forever. A thousand years from now, Virginia, nay, ten times ten thousand years from now, he will continue to make glad the heart of children. As it was in the Gilded Age of New York in the 1890s, so it remains today in this time, the place. Yes, Tarsicana, there is a Santa Claus. Go to sleep tonight early, so that the jolly old elf will be sure to visit you in the night. And may you all wake to a joyous Christmas morn. Very cool. Very cool. So let me find myself here. Hang on. I don't want to kick you guys out because that'll be next. Hang on. Let me find me. There we are. Okay. So bring us back. Whoa, where did we go, man? Hang on. Oh, there we are. I got to watch this. I'm good for like during my meditation sessions with my student. I will be clicking away and, and, cl and, cl and click her out completely. So those are our poems for the night. Now I'm going to be switching over to some spooky Christmas stories. Spooky winter and Christmas stories. So let me get this up here. There was a poem I read about a Christmas tree one time when I was a kid that my mom used to read to me. And it was sad. And I was looking for that poem but couldn't find it online. So I'm still trying to search for it. But that was an interesting poem. And I've always... I have an artificial tree. Hang on. Karen Clark and the Grinch Cup. I have an artificial Christmas tree because I feel sorry. <laughs> I'm not a tree hunter, but I feel sorry for the live Christmas trees because of this poem that my mother um, had given me. And it's, 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 it's written from the perspective of the, of, of the tree itself. So you can see how that goes because it's cut down. It's, and they said, the, the, the essence of it was the tree gets cut down, taken to this house, and it's all adorned and beautiful. And the other trees are saying, don't go, don't go, don't go. But this tree is so proud because it's chosen. And then, you know, what happens after Christmas? We take everything off these trees and chuck them in, in outside of the gutter and let them drive. So that was the essence of this poem. So, yeah. That's why I have issues with, with like, live Christmas trees. To this day. Okay. So, uh, yeah. So I, I did a pre-read Sunday because we were out last night for Christmas Eve. And uh, this book was something because... It depressed me when I read it. I can tell you that much. <laughs> so we're continuing tonight, and I'm not. There's no cheery stories in here. There might be, you know, the, uh, there might be stories that that have have you know somewhat happy endings, but you're not going to get real cheery stories in here. So let's get going. Okay. So let me grab. Let's head to the next chapter on here. Doo, 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 doo. I kind of stopped in the middle of the chapter because we ran out of time the other day. So, there we go. So here we go. This this is uh, the Spirits of Christmas: The Dark Side of the Holidays by Sylvia Schultz. The Spirit Bridge, or the Silver Bridge, seventeen hundred fifty feet long, was a stretch of U.S. Highway thirty-five that connected Point Pleasant, West Virginia, with Gallipolis, Ohio. The bridge spanned the Ohio River and was a major thoroughfare between the two states. Built in 1928, the bridge was famous as an excellent engineering achievement. 
Hundreds of cars carrying thousands of people drove on the bridge every day from 1928 until December 15, 1967. On that day, the bridge collapsed during evening rush hour at 4.55 p.m., sending 60 to 70 cars plunging into the frigid waters. I'm cheered up now. Of the Ohio River. Only five people managed to escape their submerged vehicles and swim to safety. On the Ohio side, about 250 feet of the bridge slammed in, into land, killing four people and injuring eight. Witnesses said the bridge listed sharply, throwing cars and trucks into the river, then collapsed with a slow-motion groan on top of the vehicles, grinding them into the mud at the bottom of the river. Forty-six people died when the Silver Bridge collapsed. Ben Cedar crossed the Silver Bridge three times on the day it collapsed. He worried every time he had to cross the bridge. It would often sway alarmingly, and if you got stuck in traffic jam, there was simply nowhere to go. Cedar crossed the bridge just before 5 p.m. on December 15th. He stopped in, he, he stopped in Gallopolis, Ohio, at the Kroger store and used a payphone to check, on, to, to check in with his office. He was a Kirby salesman. As he hung up the phone, he heard the other store customers talking about a bridge collapse. Bill Needham was a 27-year-old truck driver from North Carolina who was on the bridge when it fell. His rig sank quickly to the bottom of the river. He held his breath until he could roll down the cab window. He wriggled in the pitch, into the pitch-black water and swam for the surface. He grabbed some floating debris and, after about 15 minutes, was pulled into a rescue boat. He was taken to Pleasant Valley Hospital with a broken back. Needham's driving partner, Robert Toe, was not as lucky. He was in a sleeping berth at the back of the cab and had strapped himself in. Toe had just built a new home for his wife and three, three small children and had bought a farm. December 15, 1967, was supposed to have been his last day as a long-haul trucker. And the most incredible thing about this disaster, it was caused by the failure of one tiny part of the whole massive thing. At the time of the bridge's construction in 1928, people were driving Model Ts, which weighed about 1,500 pounds. Permitted truck weights in those days were around 20,000 pounds, or 20 tons. But as time went by, cars and trucks both got bigger and heavier. By 1967, the average family car weighed about 4,000 pounds, and truck limits were set at 60 tons or more. Traffic itself was heavier, with more drivers on the roads. Bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic jams on the bridge stopped traffic flow several times a day, five days a week. This put even more stress on the structure. Investigators later determined that the entire bridge collapsed excuse me, because of the failure of one single link, a single eye bar in a suspension chain that had a defect one-tenth of an inch deep. For readers interested in cryptids, there is an intriguing postscript story to this. Some people believe that the Silver Bridge collapsed of December 15, 1967, is linked to the Mothman sightings that began in the area in November 66. Citizens of West Virginia reported sightings of a winged humanoid in the, in the year before the disaster. Some say that Mothman sightings foretell impending doom. Others blame Mothman for actually causing the tragedy. Some go as far as to label it a demonic entity bent on leaving destruction and sorrow in its wake. The good folks of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, aren't taking any chances. The Mothman Festival is held every year in downtown Point Pleasant to celebrate the mysterious cryptid, whatever it is. Now, here's a book that I've read before. In fact, it was the first book, I believe, or the first or second book that I read for the holidays over the air, The Crash of Flight 401. 
Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was on its way to Miami International Airport on the night of December 29, 1972. The Lockheed TriStar was making its final approach when a panel light came out of the cockpit, signaling trouble with the landing gear. The pilot, Captain Robert Loft, and flight engineer, Donald Repo, weren't unduly concerned. The plane had only been in service for four months, and it was the pride of the fleet. Flight 401 was one of the most modern and technologically advanced passenger jets of its kind. And its day. First Officer Albert Stockstill had been instructed to lower the landing gear. He did so, but not all the wheel indicator lights were green. Captain Law figured it was probably a faulty bulb. Stockstill tried to remove the bulb, while Don Repo went down into the avionics bay to check visually to see if the landing gear was down. In all this calm, in all this calm problem solving, none of the three men realized that the autopilot had shut off, and the plane was losing altitude over the alligator-infested Everglades. Flight 401 was going 227 miles per hour when it smashed into the swamp. Many passengers were killed on impact, as was First Officer Stockstill. Don Repo and Bob Law survived the crash. When rescue teams reached the crash site several hours later, Repo was rushed to the hospital, but died of his injuries soon afterward. Later, Loft died at the scene of the crash before the rescuers arrived. 98 passengers and crew members were killed when Flight 401 was lost. An official investigation into the accident concluded that the crash was caused by pilot error. Captain Loft was an experienced pilot. He had flown the TriStar model since their introduction and had over 30,000 hours experience in the cockpit. He had a dependable crew, too. But every man of the cockpit crew failed to monitor the jumbo jet's altitude as they tried to fix the problem with the undercarriage. Later, it was discovered that the nose wheel was down and locked at the time of the crash. Captain Loft had been right. The problem was a faulty bulb after all. The massive whisper liner was in pieces, but some of those pieces, like the galley, were still usable. Eastern Airlines decided to salvage parts of the plane and installed them on other aircraft, including Flight 318 and Flight 903. Flight engineers arrived before other crew members do to pre-flight checks on the plane. One day, an engineer came on board and was puzzled to see another Eastern employee already sitting in a seat. His puzzlement turned to shock when the man turned to face him, and the engineer recognized Don Repo. You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I've already done it, the dead man said. Then he vanished. Attendants on Flight 318 started seeing Captain Loft on their plane. One stewardess saw the captain standing in the aisle near the back of the plane. He turned around and looked at her with a smile, then faded away. The stewardess dropped in a faint. Another crewman said he heard the dead captain's voice come over the public address system, asking passengers to put on their seatbelts. Still another saw Loft's ghost sitting in a passenger seat staring out the window. Crew members were not the only ones seeing ghostly apparitions. On two separate occasions, passengers flagged down a passing stewardess to let them know that the man sitting next to them, the one dressed in the uniform of an Eastern Airlines flight officer, looked horribly pale and sat there without moving or speaking. On both occasions, the stewardess duly checked the ill passenger and found nothing but an empty seat. And both startled passengers were shown photographs of Eastern Airlines staff and identified Don Repo as the sick-looking man in the empty seat next to them. Several caterers loading N3118 for its next flight rushed off the plane and refused to go back on, on to finish the job. They had all seen a flight engineer in the galley who vanished in front of their eyes. 
The officials at Eastern Airlines were not at all pleased with the numbers of ghost stories being circulated around their planes. They threatened to fire any Eastern employee caught telling tales. This was a teensy bit hypocritical, because the vice president of the company spoke with Captain Loft on a Miami-bound flight. As soon as he realized he was speaking with Loft, the ghosts disappeared. But the stories continued to circulate. In 1974, an article about the haunted planes appeared in the newsletter of the U.S. Flight Safety Foundation, which was a further source of embarrassment for the company's top brass. But then, the spirits of Bob Loft and Don Repo changed their tactics just slightly. They had just been, they had, they had just been appearing to crew and passengers and sometimes scaring the pace out of them. But now, the Phantoms had a message for the living crew of the planes. They haunted. Stewardess Faye Merriweather was working in the galley at Flight 903 on a jaunt from New York to Mexico City when she saw a weird reflection in the oven window. The galley had been refitted on Flight 903, and this was the same oven that had been on Flight 401. The reflection wavered, then resolved itself into a face, the face of Don Repo. The face seemed to be trying to speak. More fascinated than frightened, Merriweather quietly got two of her co-workers, another stewardess and engineer, to come to the galley with her. When the three got back, Don Repo's face was clearer than ever. The apparition's lips twitched, and the ghostly face spoke. Watch out for fire on this airplane, an eerie voice said in a hollow monotone. The flight arrived in Mexico City without incident, but the three crew members couldn't forget the ghostly warning. And on the return trip, they had reason to remember the warning. The plane was sitting on the runway in Mexico City preparing for takeoff when the starboard engine failed. The engine backfired several times, and the engineers quickly shut it down before it caught fire. It was Don Repo's spirit that appeared most often, always dressed in his Eastern Airlines uniform. He was usually seen sitting in the plane's first-class section or in the crew area, and sometimes in the cockpit. The Phantom always appeared calm and relaxed, but very concerned about the plane's safety. Often, the ghost manifested to make suggestions or give warnings to the plane's crew, who only realized they were dealing with the paranormal when Repo vanished after talking to them. Both Loft and Repo seemed to be haunting the planes to which they were still connected, because of the crash that killed them. Perhaps they felt responsible for the deaths of the 96 people who perished with them in that human monkey swamp. Their message was always one of protection and of responsibility. They appeared on many occasions to warn crews about equipment malfunctions and impending danger. One captain was checking his instruments before a flight from Miami to Atlanta. Repo's face appeared, floating in the cockpit in front of the astonished pilot. There will never be another crash of an L-1011, Repo assured the pilot. We will not let that happen. Eventually, all the parts that had been salvaged from Flight 401 were removed from various planes that had received them. The spirits of Bob Loft and Don Repo were never seen again after that. Still, they kept their promise to protect Eastern's 1011 fleet. The crash of Flight 401 on December 29, 1972, was the last fatal crash of the TriStar fleet. From 1972 until Eastern Airlines folded in 1991, there were no other crashes involving that fleet. And to give a little more context to the story, there's, there's a lot of stories of uh, Repo and Loft showing up, and there's one in particular that's kind of scary. Um, there was an engineer working on one of those planes, and he was down in the dark, and there was no light. His light kept going out. He was down in the belly of the plane working on stuff, and he had lost a screwdriver or some tool, and as he was walking with his hands out, you know, feeling to find this tool, something grabbed his hand, turned his hand over, and put the tool in his hand. 
And this is a this is another flight engineer. So I mean, these reports didn't just come from anybody. There's reports were coming from from train flight crews and stuff. And the guy that wrote the book, Fuller, John Fuller, said that the reports there were certain stewardesses that were helping him put these stories together. And they, each time they each time they took one of those planes, they would run into the cockpit because because the um, there's always a flight report, a written flight report, and so they would run into the cockpit to see if they could get stories, you know, in the report. And there was always a new uh, book in there. So Eastern was, was removing these books. As these reports came in, they replaced it with a new report book. So that was going on. So, I mean, this this is one of the most credible hauntings of, of a commercial vehicle that's out there. It's an interesting book. It's hard to find. It's I, I don't know if it's out of print, but it took me a long time to find it. And I still have the one. I still... I ended up getting a used one, and I still have it. I still have the book. This is an interesting read because John Fuller, when he first begins writing the book, is not is not a believer in the paranormal at all. So he takes it from, you know, kind of, kind of believing, you know, and and just the facts, writing down what's going on with that, what went on with that plan. But he also takes it from a scientific perspective, and he does interview some well-known scientists who talk about the paranormal. So it's an interesting book if you ever get a chance. It's called The Ghost of Flight 401. The Indian Ocean Tsunami. Thailand, in Southeast Asia, is a favorite vacation destination for people all over the world. Thailand is known as the land of smiles for the legendary hospitality and politeness of its people. Buddhism is a major religion of the country, and Buddhist serenity seems ingrained in the people. Tourist companies describing a Thailand vacation promise something for everyone. Sophisticated metropolitan Bangkok has big city energy with markets and temples to explore. Northern Thailand is home to archaeological riches, including several World Heritage sites. Visitors can wander ancient temples and cities, peek at opulent royal palaces, and visit elephant camps in the majestic mountains to see the great beasts at work at play. And in the south are Thailand's famous beach resorts. Tourists from across the world come to these luxury resorts to enjoy the pure white sand beaches and the tropical islands dotting the blue-green sea. But on December 26, 2004, this serene paradise became hell on earth. A massive undersea earthquake triggered a series of tsunamis that devastated Southeast Asia. The earthquake that caused the Indian Ocean tsunami was the third largest quake ever recorded, with an estimated magnitude of 9.1 on the Richter scale. Yikes! It holds the record for the longest duration ever observed. The earthquake redistributed the continental shelf and changed the rotation of the Earth. The quake was so strong, it shortened the length of Earth's day by about two microseconds. Think of an ice skater pulling her arms in to tighten the speed at which she spins. All of this caused incredible destruction. Waves 100 feet high slammed into the Indian Ocean coast, killing 230,000 people in 14 countries. 50,000 people were missing after the tsunami struck. They were later added to the list of presumed dead bringing the toll to an estimated 280,000. It was the fifth deadliest natural disaster in history. The devastating tragedy led to many hauntings along Thailand's lovely beaches. They began almost immediately after the waves receded. A security guard quit his job after hearing the screams of a woman echoing in the night from the wreckage of a hotel that was particularly badly hit. ABC Australia Broadcasting Company reported that spooked volunteers searching for bodies at the resort areas of Fifi Island, I think it's Fifi Island, and Kao Lock, 
her church singing and laughing on the beach. When they went to investigate, they found only darkness and empty sand. And Kyle Luck, Luck, I say L-A-K, Luck, a local family telephone rang constantly in the days and nights following the tsunami. When they answered the phone, they could hear the voices of friends and relatives begging to be rescued from the flames of the, crem of the crematorium. Ew. Many of these ghosts and for and far foreigners. There's a story of a ghostly tourist who wanders up and down one of those beautiful beaches, calling mournfully for her lost child. Another tale tells of a foreign man and his thigh, his, his thigh girlfriend who hailed a cab to take them to the airport, but disappeared during the ride. That was not the only report of vanishing passengers. The BBC aired an, an, an antidote told by a tuk-tuk driver who gave his name only as Lek. On January 6, 2005, seven foreign tourists climbed into his, into his minivan late at night. After agreeing on a 200 baht fee, the tourists asked Lek to drive them to Kata Beach on the west coast of the island. A fuck, a fuck it. P-H-U... Okay, guys. No censors, YouTube, okay? No censors on Facebook. P-H-U-K-E-T. Fuket? I don't know. He, he drove for a while. Suddenly, he felt his body go curiously numb. He glanced at his rearview mirror, and all seven of his passengers were gone. Many Thais are deeply superstitious. In addition to Buddhism, there's a certain degree of nature worship going on, too. Many Thais believe most large trees are home to ghosts. And every home has a spirit house or altar where offerings of food and drink are made daily to pacify any supernatural entities who may be nearby. Fish sellers and seafood restaurants along the West Coast saw a, a big drop in business from the locals after the tsunami. Many Thais were refusing to eat fish, fearing the ocean creatures had been nibbling on human corpses that had been swept off the sea. Almost 95% of Thailand's population is Buddhist, and they believe in reincarnation regardless of religion. Each time a person dies, their spirit spends some unspecified amount of time as a ghost, self-aware and seeking rebirth. Buddhist monks chant prayers to the dead, urging them to stop wandering the places where they died, so the living can be left in peace and the dead can be reborn. An interesting facet of these ghost stories is that nearly all the ghosts roaming Thailand's beaches and resorts after the tsunamis were foreign, and Asians were utterly terrified of them. In the years after the disaster, tourism from Europe, Australia, and the United States rebounded pretty quickly. But the number of tourists coming to Thailand from Asia plummeted. Psychologist Juan Lup, oh my God, Juan Lup P, I can't pronounce this guy's name, I'm not even going to try, explained this in an interview with BBC News. Foreigners make a big impression on Thais, the doctor said. They're physically imposing and often seem rich and powerful. If people like that die terrible circumstances, it's not surprising they should come back in people's minds as ghosts, especially when they have so far to go to to get home. The Buddhist monks of Thailand have figured out a way to help these lost foreign souls move on to their next life. In addition to burning offerings of paper clothes and symbolic money to, 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 get, to, to calm these spirits, the monks added another offering, one that was sure to appeal to foreign tourists trapped in a strange land, pizza. So they leave pizza out. Now, wouldn't that make you feel better? It would me, especially if it's the kind I like. Tis the season, creeping up on Christmas. Let me do this real quick. It's just as easy to find ghosts on December as it is in any other month of the year. They're always out there, waiting for us to notice them. A flash flood. 
The middle, year, the middle years of the 19th century were a time of great social advances and great optimism. Social reforms were the order of the day, and many felt they could change the world for better through their, through their ideas. It was not only in New England, cradle of the young nation, that these changes were taking place. Even in the Midwest at the time, still considered the wild frontier, social reformers sought to spread their ideas. Judge Wade Lufworld purchased over a 1,000 acres of land bordering the Ohio River in Claremont County, and in 1894, he founded a village he called simply Utopia. Loughborough and his followers were supporters of a philosophy of a Frenchman named Charles Fourier. Fourier, Fourier envisioned a society based on agriculture, far removed from the evils of machines where people would live and work together. Work would be assigned to people according to their natural inclinations and abilities. In short, he envisioned a commune where every person's need would be provided for and where people would help one another. Loofborough and his group were eager to try out this social experiment for themselves. They built a two-story brick building with 30 rooms for everyone to live in. Unfortunately, communal living is not always the easiest way to run a society. And within two years, it became obvious that the community was not going to be a viable option. In 1846, Loofborough, seeking a way to make at least some of his investment back, sold the land and house to John O. Waters, the leader of a group of 100 spiritualists. The spiritualists, too, were seeking a better way to perfect society. Spiritualism was intensely popular during the mid-19th century, gaining even more followers during and after the Civil War. Spiritualists believed that human beings don't really die, although physical bodies might decay. The spirit lives on in the afterlife. Spiritualists sought to communicate with the shades, yeah, with the shades of the deceased with the help of mediums. The souls of the dead, they believed, could speak with those they left behind through many avenues, such as manifestations, written messages, spirit photography, trance speaking, automatic writing, even music. Waddles was a medium blessed with the ability to converse with the spirits. He was not, however, a builder. When the spiritualist built the house that Loofborough's group had built, bought, sorry, bought the house that Loofborough's group had built, they decided for some reason not to leave it where it was. Instead, they moved it closer to the river, adding a basement and a third story. The housewarming party for the reconstructed building and the spiritualist grand experiment was planned for December 13, 1847. The house was filled with people, all gathered to mark the beginning of a new venture. For most of the partygoers, though, it was not the beginning but the end. As people mingled and chatted, sipping cups of punch, no one suspected the insidious danger that stalked the new building, drawing ever closer. Eventually, though, someone noticed that water was trickling across the floor in a slow but steady stream. Suddenly, the trickle became a torrent. Water from the Ohio River pushed its unstoppable way through the house, flooding everything in its path. It has been said that only six people survived the calamity. The house is still home to several spirits, according to reports, going back to the early 20th century. The spirits, including a lady in a blue dress and bonnet, always appear soaking wet. Families have lived in the Waddles house since, it, since 1917. A second-floor bedroom is believed to have been John Waddle's room, as many people report having a peculiar experience there. People say they feel an unnatural sense of drowsiness there, almost like a trance state. In this twilight doze, people say they experience a vision of six travelers coming up the road, entering the Waddle's house, and walking up the staircase to the bedroom. As they come close to the room, the vision fades away. 
The woman in blue is invariably a part of the group in the vision. Witnesses sometimes see her accompanied by a young boy and a man in Amish-style clothing. If this bedroom was once indeed used by John Waddles, those witnesses might be experiencing a hint of the trance state used by that long-ago spiritualist when he communicated with phantoms in his own time. Richard Crawford, a historian and writer who has made the study of the Waddles house his passion, described an odd experience he had at the house. He was there with the film crew to shoot an annual Halloween show. Quote, the owner's daughter, says Crawford, who couldn't have been more than three or four years old, just started jumping up and down, saying she wanted to be on television, end quotes. Understandable behavior for an excitable little kid. The girl's mother shushed her, telling her she had to stay out of the way and leave the film crew alone while they were working. Of course, you can tell a kid a hundred times to stay out from underfoot, but making sure she does, she does it is another thing entirely. Filming was delayed several times because of the girl's interruptions. The mother insisted that the crew keep quiet about the ghost stories associated with the home. She didn't want her to get freaked out by the thought of ghosts. Finally, the crew was finished shooting and ready to wrap. They were in John Waddle's bedroom when the door burst open and the little girl came barreling into the room in again. The mother, exasperated, asked the girl what she wanted. Crawford says that the girl asked her mother if she remembered what had happened just a couple nights earlier. The mother recalled aloud that she had been baking and had asked the girl to stop bothering her. I'm beginning to see a pattern here. The girl nodded agreement, and according to Crawford's recollection said, Yes, and I did bug you even more. I didn't even let the people who came to the door into the house. There were six people outside, and there was a lady in a blue dress with a blue bonnet, and they were all wet. Mother and Phil Kruger sat stunned. The girl's mother had been vigilant about shielding her young daughter from the unsettling stories of the house's history. But all on her own, the girl had just described the apparitions people had, see had been seeing for years, down to the smallest detail. They say children are more receptive to seeing spirits, simply because they haven't yet learned that they can't. It seems the little girl was picking up on the psychic echo of that long-ago tragedy. Pretty cool, pretty cool. The Haunting of Hunley, Ho of Hunley, blah, the haunting of Hunley House The morning of December 12, 1928, dawned bright and brisk in Carbondale, Illinois. Before midnight that evening, the town would be rocked with the news of horrific double murder. One of the victims was Charles, John Charles Hunley, who had been mayor of Carbondale in 1907 and 1908. He was a wealthy, wealthy well-respected businessman who had many friends and business associates in the area. Also dead was Hunley's second wife, Luella. Although he had the respect of his peers, John Hunley had made some mistakes in his life. In 1893, he had killed a man. Hunley had murdered a music teacher, but was acquitted by the jury after he explained his reason. The man had been sleeping with Hunley's wife. By invoking the unwritten law, Hunley gained the sympathy of the husbands and brothers sitting in the jury box. After this incident, Hunley divorced his unfaithful wife. This caused a family rift between Hunley and his son, Victor. The spat had supposedly been smoothed over years before John's murder, but there were those in town who hadn't forgotten the bitter feelings between father and son. Hunley remarried a few years after his divorce, choosing Luella Harrison as his new bride. Luella herself came from a business-minded family. Her father was Ruffin Harrison, one of the founders of the town of Heron, Heron, Illinois and the owner of numerous coal mines in the region, and she was the sister to George Harrison, president of Harrison's First National Bank.
1950, John and Luella Hunley bought a lot at the corner of Main and Maple Streets and built a lavish, luxurious home for themselves. John was the model of a Gilded Age tycoon. Partnering with his son Victor in, in the younger Hunley's coal business, Luella, as befitting the wife of an upper-class businessman, was very active in charity work and was an accomplished musician besides. Luella, in particular, was regarded as having no enemies, which made her murder even more shocking. A family friend, Joe Goodall, visited the Hunleys on the evening of Wednesday, December 12th. The Hunleys were planning a motor trip to their winter home in Florida, and they were looking forward with high spirits to their departure on Sunday. Goodall left the house around 8 p.m., and Luella locked the back door behind him. Just before midnight, Olga Casper, the Hunleys' next-door neighbor, heard several pistol shots ring out into the night. Peering out her window, she saw the lights in the Hundley house go out. Later, she heard someone running past her house, coming from the Hundley's home and heading towards Victor's house, just 200 yards away. In response to phone calls from the neighbors, police were on the scene in minutes. The investigation determined that John Hundley was murdered first. His body was found in an upstairs bedroom dressed only in a nightshirt and socks. He had been shot from behind six times with a forty-five caliber revolver. Luella Hundley had been killed, it seemed, on a rear stairway, attacked as she went to investigate the earlier shots. She had been shot twice in the head and once in the heart. From the stairs, her body had rolled into the kitchen. A pencil lay on the floor next to her left hand, and an unfinished letter was still sitting on the table in the next room. Luella's was a life suddenly interrupted. At first, Chief of Police Joe Montgomery told the press that robbery seemed to be the motive for the murders. However, there was only the slimmest evidence for this theory, an empty pocketbook on the floor near Luella's body. Other than that, nothing in the house was disturbed, not the valuable artwork, not the expensive furnishings, and not the considerable amount of cash. The police quickly focused their investigation elsewhere. On the morning of December 13th, investigators thoroughly searched the Huntley house. They discovered that the back door that that Joe, Joe Goodall said Luella had locked behind him after his visit was unlocked at the time of the murders, with no sign of forced entry. That hinted strongly that the Hunleys knew their attacker. Perhaps Luella even got it from her letter writing and let him into the house. Tracking dogs were brought in and put on the trail of the killer. Four times, the dogs led their handlers straight to the home of Victor Hunley, John's son. This didn't look good for Victor. Even worse, investigators from the Jackson County Sheriff's Office searched the route between the two houses. Along the path, the investigators found several slips of paper that seemed to have been dropped unnoticed, perhaps as the killer fled the Huntley house. One paper, dated December 5th, was a notice of the termination of partnership of Mr. and Mrs. J.C. Huntley with Victor Huntley, dissolving their support of Victor's prominent coal business. Another paper was a blank, it was a bank deposit slip. On the back, a note in Noella's handwriting figured the interest on a loan in the amount of $532. At the top of the slip, also in Luella's handwriting, was the name Vic. All this was enough for Sheriff William Flanagan to bring Victor Hundley in for questioning. Things began to look even bleaker for Victor when investigators found a bloodstained khaki shirt during their search of his house. Victor claimed he'd been wearing the shirt when he'd been told of his father's and stepmother's murders. Police had come to his door, Victor said and had woken him and asked him to come to the elder Hunley's house. He had picked up his stepmother's body while he, while he was wearing the shirt, and that's where the blood had come from. Investigators encountered with the fact that Victor hadn't touched the body. 
Victor immediately changed his story. He remembered suddenly that he'd been wearing the shirt while out hunting for quail. And that's where the blood had come from. Sheriff Flanagan hammered on Victor for seven hours. Victor told investigators that on Wednesday night, the night of the murders, he'd been home all evening reading and playing with his son. He had gone to bed early, and then he'd been awakened by police. He admitted that he owned a forty-five caliber revolver, but he claimed he had recently loaned it to his father. Police searched both houses for the gun, but found nothing. To this day, the murder weapon has never been found. All of Victor's protests did not prove his innocence. He was put under house arrest as the investigation continued. At the inquest, John Goodall Goodwill testified that John Huntley had recently told him that he planned to write up a new will. John planned to disinherit Victor because he was no good. If this was the case, Victor stood to lose a lot of money by being cut out of his father's will. John Huntley's estate was worth 350000 but Victor was faced with having to settle for just his trust fund worth less than 15000 Victor was arrested for the murders of John and Char John Charles and Luella Huntley on December 15th, immediately after their funerals. The state's attorney, Fletcher Lewis, felt sure he could prove Victor guilty in court. Incredibly, though, Lewis was wrong. In an amazing display of the accused being innocent until proven guilty, Lewis was forced to let Victor go free on December 31st. After the hearing, the disappointed prosecutor made a statement to the press. While the facts and circumstances learned from the investigation amply justified the holding of Victor Huntley and the, fling of, and the filing of a, of a complaint charging him with murder, I have decided to prosecute this case no further. As if washing down this bitter pill, Lewis added, I feel quite sure that the atrociousness of this crime will compel the conscience of the person who committed it to someday make a public to make public his guilt. But if Lewis thought to shame Victor or anyone else into confessing to the double murder, it didn't work. The shooting of J.C. and Luella Huntley has never been solved. Maybe that's why the house in which they died still echoes with their presence. The mansion sat empty for two years after the murders. The only physical evidence of the tragedy was a bullet hole in the wall near, near where Luella's body was found. But the community's memory was long, especially when it came to murder. In 1930, Ed Volger bought the mansion and its contents from the Huntley estate. In 1972, the house was sold to the Simmons family, who converted the mansion into a gift shop with apartments upstairs. Several of the past owners and tenants have reported oddities in the building. One resident heard the piano downstairs playing faintly by itself. His, her family also heard footsteps going up and down the stairs. Former owner Victoria Spray felt that Luetta's ghost followed her home from work at least once. Spray ran the gift shop in the Huntley house for five years. One evening, as she lit herself into her empty house, she noticed that the kitchen lights were on and she heard pots and pans clanging. She wasn't spooked by the industrious spirit, though. It's a very peaceful vibe. Spray's daughter, Nina, had her own odd experience with the host of the Huntley House. She and her husband have both seen the porch swing move by itself, even when there's no wind. I think Mr. and Mrs. Huntley still like to swing at night, she said. Okay, guys. Um, we'll continue this probably on Sunday. And the next thing we're going to be reading is about the messenger of Donner Pass. So, wow, chat room exploded. Hi, guys. How's everybody doing? Good to see you. Good to see you all. I really appreciate it. Let's see what's going on here. Who do we have? Okay. 
All right. Well, that's going to conclude tonight. And I will see you guys tomorrow, usual time, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And we're going to continue because of my eye situation at the moment. We're going to continue with the other book that we have on the history of Yuletide. So we're going to be, I'm going to be reading from that. And we're coming into the country of France to talk about ancient Yuletide in France. And you got to remember that book was written in 1908. So you're going to get really, really ancient versions of Yuletide for, for, from the old days. So we'll continue with that tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I really appreciate you all coming tonight. And I know it's your... Last day of Christmas. Whoa, this just turned itself off. There we go. And uh, I just want to let you know how much I really appreciate you guys coming. So I will see you tomorrow. Oh, yes, before I do this. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Hunts Radio. Just trying to get the word out. If you were watching from Facebook tonight and you haven't done so already, please feel free to follow. We're looking for, for, you know, just like I said, once again, to get our name up there for followers. And maybe you had somebody in the house come listen with you. That would be great. You know, if you did, I really appreciate that. And again, share, share, share. If you're over on uh, YouTube and you were watching the show, notice that I have a subscriber button up there. And uh, I'm looking for subscribers. I'm 225 away from 1,000 subscribers. We're trying to build this up. So if you could subscribe, I'd really appreciate it. Also, if you like the show tonight, please show me some love. Give me some thumbs up. Give me some hearts. And uh, that helps us with the FYP rhythms. And I see you guys are in the chat room. So that's cool, too. All right. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bid you goodbye. And I will see you tomorrow night, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening, gang. Just a quick announcement. Um, I was reading the chat in the chat room. No, you are not required to pay to watch this show. Uh, there's never a requirement. The ticker running at the bottom is to help. Excuse me. Uh, is for donations to help support the show. Because this is how I pay the bills. You know, I, I have bills like everybody else. So you're, you're not required to pay to, to partake in the show. All right. I'm out of here. Have a great one, you guys. Boom.